no tourist to Paris should skip the Louvre and the Eiffel Tower. But if you want a taste of daily life as the Parisians live it, spend some time browsing through the street markets of Paris. Part of the pleasure of exploring these different markets throughout Paris is they get you into neighborhoods you wouldn't see otherwise. It's a fresh way to experience the city. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we look at some fun ways to shop in Paris with the author of a guide to the city's dozens of specialty street markets. A beer enthusiast who leads thirsty Americans through the cafes and monasteries of Belgium explains how sampling Belgian brews can be an almost religious experience. Beer is one of the few indulgences that monks are permitted so that they've become very good at it. And we'll learn about the surprises you can find in the massive cave systems of underground Slovenia. I found empty shells from the First World War. They have a date on it, 1912. We're having fun shopping, drinking, and spelunking in Europe in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Audrey Hepburn once said, Paris is always a good idea. And who could disagree? Hi, I'm Rick Steves, and coming up in a moment on Travel with Rick Steves, we're going shopping for bargains in Paris at the specialty markets scattered all around the city. If you like to treat yourself to a Trappist Belgian ale every now and then, there's plenty of that when you explore firsthand the centuries-old beer culture in Belgium. Later in the hour, a tour guide who specializes in beer tours to Europe tells us how a specialty Belgian brew, served in its proper glass, can make a believer out of you. And we'll also get an introduction to exploring the mysteriously beautiful world of caves in subterranean Slovenia. Window shopping in fashion-conscious Paris can be a treat, but the price tags can be a shock. So if you want to bring back a special souvenir from Paris for your friends back home without going broke, you can build a fun itinerary around visiting the city's specialty markets and side street shops and find just the perfect something special at a bargain price. That's what Marjorie R. Williams does every time she's in Paris. She's co-authored a snappy little guidebook to the markets of Paris. It covers the city's food, antiques, arts and crafts, and specialty markets. She's here to help us find just the right spots to make you, too, feel like an in-the-know Parisian shopper. Marjorie, thanks for being with us. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Well, it's uh, fun for me because I I love Paris, but I'm still a beginner in markets. And to be able to talk to you, who's written a book about markets, uh, give us the the general lay of the land. Uh, Your book is is big. It covers a lot of different kinds of markets. How many markets are there and, and what kind of markets are they? Well, there are over 120 markets in Paris. About two-thirds of those are food markets, and the rest of them are other kinds of markets, ranging from flea markets, Paris has world-class flea markets, to antique markets, art and crafts markets, uh, let's see, postcard market, even a bird market, a flower market, a wow. stamp market. The list goes on and on. Almost any hobbyist interest can be indulged there. Paris is a city of neighborhoods. I would imagine yes. the the basic food markets serve the neighborhoods quite well, and you can find those scattered throughout the town. That's right. But the non-food markets, there you should know what quirky market you might be interested in and then find it and hop on the metro and go there. Um, talk about some of the, the different markets that you might find scattered around the town that would be more quirky. Antique markets, you mentioned uh, bird markets. Where would you go if you wanted a bird market? For the bird market, it's on Ile de la Cité, which is right in the center, one of the little islands in the city. So it's very easy to get there, to walk there from almost anywhere else in Paris. And granted, most travelers are not going to buy a bird while they're traveling. 
But one of the benefits of going to a, the bird market or some of these other specialist markets is the way it opens up a whole world of people and items that, that pertain to this particular interest. So, for example, at the bird market, you see not only all different colors and sizes and sounds of birds, but also lots of different bird cages, bird foods, bird manuals, bird medicines, mm. and bird experts. So it's just, it's fun to delve into that world. And by the way, whether you're going to a bird market in Ile de la Cité or something farther out, for example, a used book market, a fabulous used book market in the 15th, it's a way to see the city en route to these markets. So these can get you into other arrondissements. So part of the pleasure of exploring these different markets throughout Paris is they get you into neighborhoods you wouldn't see otherwise. It's a fresh way to experience the city. Mm -hmm. The things that you get to observe at the markets, the, the family dynamics, the way the people interact with each other. One of the reasons that I encourage people to go to the market is you get to see some of the cultural conventions. Let's talk about the bouquinista, the, the little bookstalls that line the Seine River. Oh, yes. Those are so charming. Everybody loves them. They have a fascinating history. That's right, they do. The history goes goes way back, and now it's very competitive for anybody to actually get the permission, the rights to own one of those little green boxes where they set up their, their stalls. So when you walk along the Seine, you see this 200-yard long line of green boxes. On, on closed times, they're just all locked up tight like little green canned hams. But when it's open, <laughs> you've got just this cornucopia of postcards and books yes. and calendars and old records. That's right. And, and some of them are just they're selling trinkets that you might be able to find anywhere. But others are, are for example, one of my favorite bouquinis sells all sorts of cooking-related posters and cookbooks and menus that go back uh, deep into French history, menus of different important meals. I think they originated back when uh, they were selling Protestant pamphlets during the, the difficult times during the religious wars in Europe in the 16th century. That's, that's exactly right. When you are traveling around Paris, you're also going to find a vibrant immigrant demographic and their entire regions that are from North Africa and, and different parts of the former French colonies. If you wanted to experience an Arab market, where would you go and what would you experience? Arab markets, I think, are some of the most interesting food markets. And those Arab markets, let's see, some of them, uh, Marché Aligre in the 12th arrondissement or Marché Barbez, which is a lot of fun, in the 18th for a very fast-paced, fast-moving, crowded market. Uh, there's another called Belleville in the 11th, and that's a combination of an Arabic and an Asian market. Those are mostly food markets. They do sell other items. And each of these are farther away from the, from the center where most of the tourists are, I believe. So it's a reminder yes. that we do need to hop on that metro, and if we want to break out of the traditional touristy stuff and really feel the pulse of today's Paris which is multicultural and happening and forward-looking. Uh, we need to do that and then hop on that metro and make it happen. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Markets of Paris with the author of that book. And our phone number is 877-333-7425. Patricia's on the line from Coral Springs, Florida. Hi, Patricia. Hi, how are you, Rick? Great, thanks for calling. Do you have some thoughts on markets? Uh, will you be visiting Paris and uh, have a question perhaps for Marjorie? Yes, actually, um, I am visiting Paris with my daughter, and she's 15 years old. And um, we were wondering, is there anything you can think of that's extraordinary for a 15-year-old that she would remember? She likes 
different foods, and she loves to just shop in general. So I was trying to experience some culture with her while we're in France that will give her a great memory. Well, how about a flea market? Have you ever gone to a flea market with her? Oh, not not certainly in Paris, but that's a great idea. Where would you suggest we go? Yes, yes. So that would be great fun. There are two two flea markets that I would recommend. If you want to go hardcore and have a whole day, if not a whole weekend there, the place to go is Klingencourt, and that's just outside the 18th arrondissement. And another, which is less well-known, but personally is my favorite, it's at the Porte de Vanve in the 14th arrondissement. It's a little smaller, more intimate, but at both places you can get almost anything from, from large furniture down to small beads for for jewelry making. Some of my favorite gifts have come from there. Vintage mm. glassware, cheese knives, that. a leather jacket. Mm. Uh, now, Clinencourt, it's got like 2,000 vendors. It's a city. Oh, it's, it's, it's a huge. ramshackle it's city. And it's even broken yes. into different zones. So if you're interested That's in right. antiques or if you're interested in... Oh, um, what, what are some of the zones, uh, Marjorie, at the Clinencourt flea market? Oh, they have all different sort of covered shop areas and open street areas and cafes that you can stop for some fortification along the way. There's nothing quaint about it. It's it's just, it's vast. It's almost like a North African souk. And, uh, she would probably love that. I'm not a shopper, but I like to plan a day for her that is something that she's been My hunch, she would find that incredible. Also, Marjorie, explain to Patricia about the beautiful viaduct shops under the abandoned yes. train line and then the park above it. Oh, oh that's, that's one of my favorite, favorite spots. So the viaduct shops, this is in the 12th arrondissement, okay. and there are some, really some artist studios along there, and it has attracted a set of very interesting shops and a lot of homemade goods. It's like, in I think in 1998, they, they abandoned this train line and had all of these uh, brick-arched viaduct arches underneath the train line that were kind of wasted space. And they thought they would cleverly turn this into little creative uh, commercial zones. And uh, as Marjorie was talking, different artisans would camp out in there and eventually they'd have very nice shops. Today you've got 56 of these arched spaces selling all sorts of creative things. And then above it is this long, skinny, lush green park where people love to go jogging and have picnics. And uh, the park is called Promenade Plantee. That's right. One of my favorite activities when I'm in that neighborhood is to walk along that promenade that you described and then come duck down mm-hmm. the stairs, go into a few shops, then go back <laughs> up above again. And it can be the most pleasant afternoon, a combination of being out in the fresh outdoors and doing some shopping. Super. Well, thank you, Rick and Marjorie. That's been very helpful. I can't wait to go to Paris with her. How cool to take your daughter and, and uh, let her enjoy all of that. Boy, I most her. certainly will. Thank you. Have fun. Thank you. Bye-bye. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we've been speaking with Marjorie R. Williams, who, along with Dixon Long, is the co-author of Markets of Paris. Marjorie, one thing about Paris, which is so powerful and fascinating to me, is the the mix of neighborhoods. And each neighborhood will have its market. Uh, Many of these have market streets. There's about a dozen wonderful pedestrian market streets. Montorgoy is just a fascinating walk for me. Let's just close our, our little discussion of the markets of Paris here. If you could take us on a short walk down Montorgoy and uh, share some of the delights that you will enjoy when you find yourself in an open-air, pedestrian-only market street in a beautiful neighborhood of Paris. Ah, oh, okay. Well, I would start this walk 
by the restaurant with the famous snail. There's a large golden snail at the top of the restaurant, and of course, one of their specialties is escargot. And that's a landmark on this Rue Montorgoy. Across the way is a deli that one of my friends says is his favorite place to go when he's in Paris. Walking further along the street, you'll see some some bakeries, wonderful, the breads, fresh baguettes, and pastries, uh, Napoleon eclairs along mm. that street that are very, very good. There are some restaurants along the way. There are several cafes. Well, I think the lesson here is to get out. Do your research, equip yourself with a guidebook, and then become a temporary Parisian. Get out there and, and live the markets. Marjorie R. Williams, Thank you so much for your work and for joining us today as we sample the markets of Paris. Merci beaucoup. It's been such fun. And I wish all of your all of your listeners a bon voyage, whether they're traveling or daydreaming of a trip there. Ah, it's a beautiful notion. Thank you. Marjorie R. Williams includes frequently updated blog entries about the open-air street markets of Paris on her website, marjorierwilliams.com. Her latest guidebook highlights her favorite 30 markets of Provence in the south of France. She'll be back with us again next month to tell us about those markets. 877-333-7425. That's our phone number. Radio at ricksteves.com is our email address. We'll explore the famous caves of Slovenia in just a bit. But first, we'll brace ourselves with a little Belgian-style refreshment. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. Last time I was in Belgium, I met so many American beer pilgrims, people mostly from the East Coast of the United States, flying into Belgium just for a long weekend in order to enjoy the beer. There is something about Belgium that just is amazing if you are a beer aficionado. And we're going to talk about that right now. Stu Stewart joins us, and Stu's an American who leads beer tours in Belgium. He joins us now to sort out what it is about Belgian beer. Thanks, Stu, for being with us. Hey, you're welcome, Rick. It's good to be here. Stu, what is it about uh, Belgian beer? You claim on your website, uh, Belgian beer possesses the enviable capacity to change people's lives. How so? It does. It's just that good and just that different than any other beer in the world. I don't care how bad or good of a day you're having. If you have a Belgian beer, your day will be better. (laughs) Now, are we talking about Lagers, or are we talking about fancier, heavier beers? No, we're talking about ales. Ales. Predominantly okay. ales. There are a few lagers made in Belgium, but they make mostly ales. So Stella is a popular Belgian beer, but that would just be a lager, right? That's correct. So we're talking about ales. What is it about ales? How are they different? Well, there's two types of beers, ales and lagers. Ales are brewed with a top fermenting yeast, and they are fermented at uh, higher temperatures for a shorter period of time, whereas lagers are brewed with a bottom fermenting yeast at lower temperatures for a longer period of time. Okay, because they are a different creature. I was I bumped into a chime, and I, I couldn't believe that it was like drinking a different, it was like a milkshake of beers or something of like that. I just absolutely loved it and uh, ended up tracking it down back when I was home. Now, when you think about Belgian beer, you think about monastic beers. So many of the very best beers in Belgium are brewed by monks or come out of monasteries. What's the history of that? People often ask me, and they say, why do the monasteries make such great beers? And the answer is quite simple. That's because beer is one of the few indulgences that monks are permitted, so they've become very good at it. Hmm. And they've had thousands of years in which to do this. 
I guess that makes sense. In fact, um, that brings to mind champagne was invented by a monk just south of the border in, in France. So they, they got their time on, on their hands in the monasteries and they can play around with fermenting things. And uh, in Belgium, the monks have a history of brewing the very best beer possible. You hear Trappist. Trappist is a monastic order, right? That's right. They're a, a strict observant of the Cistercian order. There's like, how many different varieties of, of beer in Belgium to choose from? Some people say there are more than a thousand at this point, brewed by more than 150 different breweries. 150 different breweries. So you got a, it's really a lot of traveling before you exhaust uh, Belgium of what it has to offer. And one thing curious to me, I was just in Bruges enjoying some beer, and I asked for a particular beer, and they didn't have the proper glass for that beer. For some reason, they were all out of that glass. And they asked me if it would be okay if they used a different glass or should I change my beer. In other words, some people would change their beer order if there wasn't the proper glass to drink it in. I think that's unique to Belgium, and that's quite a a strong tradition. Can you explain that? I can. Uh, People often ask me, they say, the fact that Belgium has a specific beer glass for each beer, is that marketing or is it science? Well, the answer is it's a little bit of both. Naturally, a brewery wants you to see immediately what everybody's drinking when you walk into a beer cafe. Mm -hmm. That's part of it. But the second part is science. Uh, there's two basic types of Belgian beer glasses. There's a chalice, which is like a Chimay glass, and they say that that design deposits the beer on the front of your tongue, whereas a tulip glass deposits it on the back of your tongue. So it's really where the where you're going to taste it on your tongue that uh, is determined by the glass, whereas a, yeah. a wine glass would have more to do with the bouquet. Well, the beer glass does too. The way the top of the glass holds in the aroma and uh, centers it, you know, right into your nose. You mentioned beer cafe. Is there a certain etiquette in a beer cafe that we should be mindful of when we are tourists in Belgium? There is. First of all, they don't call bars bars there. They call them beer cafes or taverns. And the distinction would be taverns tend to serve food, whereas the beer cafes maybe not so much. But the most important thing when you walk into a beer cafe is to first establish eye contact with the bartender. Mm-hmm. He'll look at you, you look at him, give him a little nod, a little smile, then you can sit down. You know, Americans, were used to just going into a place and sitting down and hoping that some server finds us. But if you do that, it's considered very rude. That's a very so, good tip. I can see that working. You want to just acknowledge, let them know you're here, you, you see them, they see you, and you're going to begin a nice experience in their place of business. It's so important to get off on that right foot. And right. if you don't, if you're in a tourist area like Bruges, they'll overlook it because they have tourists right. in there all the time. Right. But if you get in a less touristy area, you might find yourself sitting there for 20 minutes before you get yeah. any table service and wonder why. You started out with an awkward little faux pas. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Stu Stewart, and Stu's an American who leads beer tours in Belgium. His website is belgianbeerme.com. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Ellie's on the line in Los Angeles. Ellie, thanks for your call. Thanks, Rick. Yeah, do you have a comment or a question for Stu? Yes, I do. Hi, Stu. Um, I'll be on a hey, tour Ellie. in Belgium. I don't typically drink beer, but I know it's an important drink in Belgium. Can you suggest some beer types or flavors that will be a gentle introduction and help to cultivate my palate? I'm going to give you one of my favorite beers in the world. It's made by Guden Carolus, and it's called Cuvée Van de Kaiser Blue Stripe. And it's a dark, rich beer made with spices. It's about 10% alcohol. And if you don't like that beer, nothing's going to help you. That's great. What's the name again? It's made by Guden Carolus, Cuvée Van de Kaiser. 
Blue Stripe. There you go, Allie. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the suggestion. Good luck with your Belgian beer awakening. And Chantel's on the phone in Houston. Chantel, thanks for your call. Hello, Rick. Uh, I'm very glad to talk to you. I've been following you on the radio and on the television for at least 20 years and read all your books. I'm from Belgium, and I just wanted to tell you about an experience we had uh, with my husband a few years ago. We were in Brussels visiting the family, and suddenly it was like uh, end of August, beginning of September, and we saw this huge parade with horses, the famous, you know, Belgium horses and brewery carts and beer wagons, and we followed that whole uh, thing, and it went to the Grand Place, and we realized they had this huge annual event, it's called Beer Festival on the Grand Place, which you know the Grand Place in Brussels is, well, I'm oh, yeah. from Belgium, but I think it's the most beautiful in the world. And they had about more than 50 breweries who had little shops there and serve about 350 type beers, a lot of small breweries, but some big ones also. Of course, the whole Grand Place was smelling like beer, like you would not believe and um, this is a little trivial, but I think whoever made the best business were the portable potties that were installed <laughs> in a corner of the complex. But it was fantastic because over 50 breweries all under the same square. So I, I think it's the first weekend in September. If uh, one of your uh, listeners go to Belgium about that time, by all means, they have to go. It's kind of a little rowdy. It's a lot of students. But it's really fun, and the pageantry is just fantastic. So that was my little grain of salt. And also, want to mention that usually when you go to a little tavern or whatever and get some beer, they also serve some delicious little chunks of cheese for free, very often with it, because the monks were not only making beer, but they made also excellent cheese. Chantel, thank you for that comment. And you mentioned uh, more than beer, there's the decor and the pageantry and just oh. all the people coming together at the Grand Unbelievable. Place. Unbelievable, yeah. Yeah, the Grand Place is the main square in Brussels, and as you said, it's arguably the best square in the world. And when you hit it during that fe- any kind of a festival, you're in for a real treat. So it's important when we're traveling to be heads up that way. Stu, have you had an experience with the uh, beer festival on the Grand Place? I have, and it is a really nice festival. I'd just like to point out that the Belgians are famous for their beer festivals. They have them in Bruges, the famous Bruges Beer Festival. There's one in Antwerp called the Modest Beer Festival. There's the Zitos Beer Festival in Leuven, which is the largest one in the country. And there's one called the Heikant Beer Festival in the little village of Heikant, which is actually a fundraiser for the scout group there. Ah. That's great. Chantel. I think it's an excuse to have a beer. <laughs> a good ex- anything for an excuse to have a beer. Chantel, did you say you're uh, Belgian? Yes, I'm from Belgium. I'm a Walloon. I'm from the south you're of Belgium, but I lived in Brussels many, many years. Okay, so that's a reminder that Belgium is half uh, French speaking in Wallonia. And Correctly. Half, half I'm from the south, from the French speaking one. And then the other half is speaking like uh, Dutch in, in the north. Yes. And, uh, yes, and Brussels would be splitting the language situation. Well, that plus English and German. <laughs> I think in the future, Brussels might be English speaking the way it's going with all those yeah, diplomats. Yeah, there. yeah, exactly. Chantel, Chantel, what is your favorite Belgian beer? Well, I'm not a real connoisseur. I like the pretty strong beer. We used to go in the little tavern near the Grand Place called uh, Image Notre Dame and uh, also La Mort Subite. You go to all those huh. little taverns and no. you go drink like local beer, what they do. Yes. And they serve the you mentioned my favorite place, A La Mort Subite. That's, that means a sudden death, I think. Yes, yeah, correct. And it, <laughs> and it has a 1920s. And I drink whatever they make. 
It has a 1920s ambience, and they're yes. fa- they're famous for their their sandwiches, the tartine. Yeah, the tartine with the with the fresh white cheese and they oh. slice radishes on top of it. And then you get a characteristic beer. You can get the cherry flavored beer there. Yeah, right. <laughs> and you can use that the sweet beer. That's another story, but you use it in dessert, and it's wonderful. Nice, a la mort subite. It's La Becasse. It's the most famous. It's it's behind the Grand Place. It's La Becasse. I was just in Labacas, and they have those uh, clay jars like they did in the 19th century. They have the Lambeck Du. Yes, yes, Lambeck, yeah. But it's just very serious. It's almost a sacred. You're loyal to the tradition of the place, and they, they really respect the beer. This, these pubs are like 400 years old. Uh, Stu, what is your uh, advice on finding these beautiful little pubs in Brussels like uh, that Chantal is talking about? I'll give you the best piece of advice I could give you on that. Buy a book called Around Brussels and 80 Beers. Around Brussels in 80 beers. <laughs> it have, has all those beer cafes. It's written by uh, Joe Stang and Yvonne DeBates. You know, it sounds a little goofy, but if any place in the world, whether you're really into beer or not, it is such a wonderful insight into the culture. When you're in, in Brussels, to know these little palaces of beer appreciation really is. It gives you an edge, I think. Yeah, a lot of those places, the tourists don't go. They don't know because it's right. just not advertised. And you see the retired people, you know, really all sitting there with their tartin of cheese, ah, you know, yeah. and uh, their beer, and they, they just meet there every day and have a good time. There's a little place, La Sirio, I think. It's next to La right. Yeah. Tell me about yeah. La Sirio, Stu. Well, it's just another uh, alley bar there, as they call them, where you walk down a, a narrow passageway and... Alley bar, long, a long passageway to get into the back, and you feel quite right. You feel quite special to have found it. It's it's sort of like a, a humble little Cheers or something like that, where everybody is regulars there, and uh, they sure appreciate their beer. Hey, uh, Chantal, thanks for your call. Thank you so much, Rick, and okay. I, I keep listening to you. It's a pleasure. Merci okay. bien. Au revoir. Thank you. Au revoir. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking beer in Belgium with Stu Stewart, and Larry emails us from Tulsa, Oklahoma. And Larry writes, how did you fall in love with Belgian beer and Belgium? Like any relationship, after so many visits, how do you keep the relationship so fresh and passionate? Ooh, that's a good question, Stu. How do you keep your relationship with Belgium and beer so fresh and passionate? That is a good question. Well, a lot of times what I'll do is, if there's a Belgian beer I've already had before, I'll uh, dress it up like a nurse or a French maid, and we'll do a little (laughs) role-playing. Sounds like a (laughs) Belgian pub fantasy. Uh, but seriously, um, I never get tired of going to Belgium. And when I visit places that I've been to before, it's always a pilgrimage, and uh, it's a ritual for me. I have my favorite places I go to where I eat and drink and places I take pictures and hang out and people watch. But also, I like to go to new places as well. And uh, I'm not afraid to put a place on a tour that I've never been to before. We'll be going there, and people will say, well, so how many times have you been to this place? And I'll say, never. My first time, too. Well, that's how you have to keep it fresh. On your website at uh, belgianbeerme.com, you write about a ritual you have at a favorite beer cafe in Bruges, a beer hall, uh, about Ravel and Bolero. Talk about that. Well, my favorite place in Bruges, I should mention two. There's a place called the Bruges Bierci, Little Bruges Bear. That's the epicenter for Belgian beer culture in the entire country. It's the most famous beer bar anywhere, run by a woman named Daisy Clays, and everybody in the beer world knows Daisy. But having said that, my uh, second favorite place is a place called Degar, which means the alley. And here again, just like Lebecaz in Brussels, it's an alley bar where it's really easy to miss. you got to know where it's at. You walk down this narrow passage and you come into this 
very, very intimate beer cafe with two levels. There's a mezzanine level, and they have a house beer, a house triple, that you can only get there. It's made by the Van Steed and Burge Brewing Company, and uh, when they serve it, it comes in a special glass on a doily with some cheese, and then at closing time, they have their custom of playing Bolero to let you know that they're getting ready to close. Hmm. Sounds great. It is. When I hear you talking about that, those are two bars that I know and have been to many times. And Daisy is like, she's got a mission in life, is just to help people enjoy beer. And when I go into Daisy's bar, um, what's called the Birchi, is that the name of it? Yeah, Bruce Birchi. Birchi. I sit at the bar for sure, and I just get to enjoy all the action as she's finding the proper glasses for the proper beer and making sure all of her loyal customers uh, know that they're they've got a real... Strong connection with the beer culture right there in Belgium. Stu, when you go to these great little beer meccas like you're talking about, is there any other etiquette that we should be careful of? I know when you go into Dagar, it feels a little intimate, and if a tourist didn't know better, he might feel a little awkward. How can you be confident, and, and how can you be sure you're, you're fitting in? Well, we've already talked about how it's important to establish eye contact with a bartender. That's number one before you sit down. But the other, other thing to keep in mind is no hand signals. They're not into hand signals. If you want another beer, you don't snap your fingers or raise your hand and say garçon. That's very bad form. It's all in the eyes. You make eye contact with the server or the bartender, and they'll know you want something, and when they are able to, they will come over and help you. Mm -hmm. So it's just all in the eyes, and it's very subtle. And once you get it down and you know how to do it, it's it's a game, and it's fun. And then I find that even when I'm back in the United States, I never use hand signals. I just, all the eyes. It's just a matter of making eye contact with them, and they'll get to you when they can. I like that idea. And it's, and it's reasonable for an American tourist who doesn't speak the language and is new in the country to play this game and get along. Mm-hmm. The one hand signal that is acceptable is the international symbol for, I want my check. Okay. And you, of course, know what that is, right? Scribble on your palm. That's right. All right. And when you're going to toast your friend in the Belgian bar, you say? Sante. Sante. Which means to your health. Thank you very much, and to your health when it comes to appreciating culture and beer all over Belgium. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. I'm a Belgian. I'm not Irish. I'm not Greek. I don't drink Guinness or Red Cena. I drink Greek. On the Skelda or the Mers, you find me drinking Gers or Lef or Chimay or Lambique. You can share your passion with us for finding just the right words to describe your travel impressions in the form of a haiku poem. It can be about exotic places you've visited or just the feeling you get from something close to home. There's a place for you to submit your original travel haiku in the radio section of ricksteves.com. From time to time on the show, we select a few of our favorites to share with you, like these. Matt Harmon from Charleston, West Virginia, knows the pleasure of a tall, cool one. European style. Wood cellar barrels hold newly fermented beer. A cold pilsner awaits. Bill Loy of Montgomery Village, Maryland, was inspired to write this haiku after observing an American couple's reaction to several nude forms in the Uffizi Gallery in Florence. Our inhibitions, challenged by the artist's plea to perceive anew. Barbara Waxman of Seattle paints this portrait of the middle of Paris. Moon over Notre Dame. Jazz on bridge to Ile Saint-Louis. A Paris party. And here's how Jason Boyd of Greenville, North Carolina, views Paris. 
One day, not enough. I will go back again. One life, not enough. Our next stop takes us to the amazing world of underground caverns in Slovenia, where you might just spot a strange creature that never sees the light of day. We're at 877-333-RICK, and by email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. Yo digo, buenos días desde Madrid. Mi nombre es Federico García, y viajo con Rick Steves. I said in Spanish, Good day from Madrid. My name is Federico García, and I travel with Rick Steves. I'm going to say it again in Spanish. Buenos días desde Madrid. Mi nombre es Federico García, y viajo con Rick Steves. Y cuando estoy en España, soy feliz como un niño. And when I'm in Spain, I'm happy as a baby. Gracias. One of my favorite things to do in Europe is to immerse myself into its hidden and sometimes peculiar places. In Slovenia, the porous bedrock of karst and limestone means there's an extensive subterranean world that underlies the pastoral rolling countryside. These miles of caves and canyons are where village legends say baby dragons and human fish make their home. Situated in the far north corner of the former Yugoslavia and the crosshairs of the competing cultures of Italy, Austro-Hungary, and the Slavic and Ottoman worlds, you can bet there are more than just a few stories to investigate under the surface of gentle Slovenia. Joining us now from Slovenia to help acquaint us with one of Europe's most popular caving regions is tour guide Barbara Jakovic. Barbara, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's great for being here. Now, when we think about your country, Slovenia, this is really where the German world, the Romantic world, and the Slavic world all come together, making a fascinating culture to visit. And your country is sitting on all sorts of interesting caves. Exactly. We are a small country, but sitting on the crossroads of cultures. So Slovenia is a Slavic country, but with a long background of history that we share with Austria, and we have a border with Italy, so we have this Italian influence. And also, uh, most of our country, most of the bedrock is limestone. So, a lot of karstic phenomena were for the first time described in Slovenian. And we hear this word all over the, the world, geologically, karst, right? Yes. K-A-R-S-T? Exactly, karst. What the, is that exactly? The origin of the word comes from Slovenian language. It comes from kras. And Kras is a plateau above Trieste, so it's in the northwestern Slovenia. And that is the part of the country where Karst as a phenomena was described for the first time. Okay, so Trieste mm-hmm. is the, the famous port that's in Italy now. In, it's in now the north in Italy, yes. And then if you go just inland, you get to the border of Italy and, and Slovenia. Exactly. And there you have a plateau that's named, that, uh, where the name Karst comes from. Exactly. It's named Kras, and that's Slovenian expression for Karst. Now, you Karst. have this limestone. When we look at the Dolomite, the mountains in Italy, those are characteristic limestone mountains. And in Slovenia, you have limestone underground that for some reason is full of holes. Well, it's limestone, the bedrock is limestone that was once the bottom of the sea, so the same as in the Dolomites, the structure is a bit different, and then through geological processes this was lifted up. And even if you don't care about all that geology, (laughs) you know if you travel in Slovenia there's lots of caves that you can tour. Yes. The two most famous caves are, are which? Well, the two most famous for sure are the Postojna cave system and the Škocian caves. Postojna and Skocan. So when you are touring there, you'll be 
tempted to go to either of these caves, and I've been to both, and the, the challenge for the traveler is, if you only have time for one, which one are you going to do? That is always very difficult because both of them are beautiful in their own unique way. So Pustuina Cave is a very big system. Until last year, that was the largest system in Slovenia. It's not anymore. But still, it's open for visitors. It has a long history. And you have beautiful formations, beautiful dripstones that you can see. And it's easily accessible even for older people or for young children. And Škocian Cave is, again, open to visitors, but there is more walking involved. But it features the largest underground canyon in Europe. So it's The largest underground canyon in yes. Europe, and that would be the Skocjan Caves. That is the Škocian Cave, and okay. because of that, it's on the UNESCO list. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Barbara Jakovic, and we're talking about her home country, Slovenia, specifically underground Slovenia. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Jeff's on the line from Nashville in Tennessee. Jeff, thanks for your call. Oh, hi, Rick. Hi, Barbara. Um, well, my wife and I were just in Slovenia, and we just thought it was fantastic. The country was great. The people we met there were just fantastic. And we were we kind of had the same dilemma you were just talking about, where we we uh, only had time to visit one of the cave systems, and we didn't know whether we should go with the Shiozian or the Postonia. We wound up going with uh, the Shkocian Caves because uh, we figured we were more active people. We didn't really want to have the, the more sort of Disneyland experience. Uh, and it was absolutely beautiful. And I, we were just wondering, if we, did we make the right choice? Is there a, a certain type of traveler that maybe lends itself more to one than the other? Boy, I tell you, I've been to both. And, uh, Jeff, that Shkocian Cave, there is nothing like it. I felt, you know the flying monkeys in The Wizard of Oz? I, I feel yeah. like that's where they must have originated from. And you walk through this cavern, and it is... Didn't it feel vast to you? Didn't you feel like you're in some sort of a fantasy movie or something? I, I, I did, and the one thing that I really that really struck me was the way the tour works is you kind of go in from the back of the cave and work your way back out the entrance, and you start it in a room that's really beautiful, and then they move you to another room that's just absolutely fantastic, and then you finally wind up in the underground cavern with that canyon there, and it's, it's just better. Every room you go to is better than the one you just left. And it's, it's amazing how nature worked that out for them. And then down below, way, way, way down below, like at the bottom of a skyscraper almost, you see the little carved footsteps that were the entry points for people 100 years ago who ventured in there with torches. Yeah, it really is amazing in that they have it lit up well and there are rails, but it's still fairly primitive. You know, it's not paved or anything like that. And you do do a lot of walking. Yeah, It's not for the... Uh, not for the faint of heart. I'd say most tour groups would go to Postonia and they would sit on their little train car and they'd take pictures of the stalagmites and stalactites, and it's a great cave. But we've seen that, I think, in a lot of the in, in different places around. And here in the West Coast, we have that in the United States. But there's nothing I've ever seen like Skocjan. Any more comments about Skocjan? Well, uh, Skocjan Cave also features some other geological phenomena like uh, Dolina. That's another thing that was introduced to the scientific language uh, from Slovenian language because Dolina in karst means that the ceiling of the cave collapsed and it opened up because Dolina in Slovenian language means any kind of valley. And what is that word again? Dolina. 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 Okay, so spelunkers would know that word, I guess. Yes, I'm sure they would. All right. And you can see that in Škocan. But um, yes, the comment was absolutely right. Uh, the Škocan cave is more for the active people. Jeff, thank you so much for your call. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks a lot, Rick. Yep. 
This is Travel with Rick Steves. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Brad's on the line from Virginia. Brad, thanks for your call. Oh, you're very welcome. I had the good fortune to the generosity of the American taxpayer to live in uh, northeast uh, Italy for a couple of years, in 2005 to 2007. And uh, was through the morale and recreation uh, service we had there in the base, got to visit both of the caverns that you mentioned the second time to Scotia with both of my daughters. And I would agree it was just an amazing place. I enjoyed them both. The one that strikes me, I remember the best, they had these giant albino salamanders on display that are native to that particular cave. And our guide said that in heavy rains, these would be washed out of the cavern into the, the stream that fed out of it. And the local villagers believed that dragons lived inside the cave, and these were baby dragons that had just hatched and been washed out. Both my daughters just love that story. Um, there was another cave you didn't mention, uh, which I also found just fascinating. I do not remember the name. I'm sure your guide would. It's the one that's the, the cave with the castle inside of it. And the story behind that was very interesting about the ruler who uh, defied a king or killed some high-ranking knight and was laid siege for a very long time. This, this is, I believe, the castle that you see on all the postcards in Slovenia. It's probably the most beautiful site in all of Slovenia from a castle sightseeing point of view. What's the name of that castle? Predjama. Predjama Castle. Predjama Castle. And I do have to say, Brad, that Predjama Castle is a beautiful site, but it's a, kind of a long drive up to a dead end, and then there's not a lot to see in the castle itself, but it's built into the side of this cliff, a little bit taking advantage of a small cave, and it is quite a striking sight from the exterior, isn't it? Yes, it certainly is. As you said, it is kind of out of the way, but being a a military guy, the the fortifications of the place really struck me as they made great use of the uh, terrain. They sure did. Now, Brad, did you actually see these giant albino salamanders, or was that just something you heard about? Oh, no, they had a couple of them in a very shallow basin, a stone basin there in the cave that we could all all look at them swimming around. And your family, your your kids saw them? Oh, yes. uh, They were... They were at least a, a couple. Couple. My wife is making it smaller. Maybe this is a fish story, but I recall they were <laughs> salamander story. <laughs> at least, at least one foot long is what I recall. But well, now here, shaking her head. Uh, Brad, we got an email from Alicia in uh, Alabama in Fairhope, and she says our family of three visited Eastern Europe this past summer. Went to two of the caves of Slovenia specifically to see the quote human fish. Our eight-year-old daughter was thrilled to finally see it. It was the highlight of her trip, and the caves were magnificent, too. Um, Barbara, is the human fish what we're talking about, the giant albino salamander? Yes, that's what it is. It's not human, and it's not a fish. It's an <laughs> amphibia. Um, Tell more about the yeah. story that Brad was talking about, what the villagers thought well, when they saw this little baby uh, dinosaur flushing out of the cave. told it excellently, actually, because that's what people thought. They could not explain the underground. They did not know a lot of the underground, and they were afraid to venture into the caves because they only had torches and candles, and that are not really reliable sources of light. So it took time to get the courage together to explore. If you put it like that, it's completely different. Nowadays, we have electricity, and so it's 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 much, much easier. It's freaky today Mm. with little lights on the side of the footpath and so on and modern electricity. But 100 years ago, if you went in with a torch and you found these albino salamanders... Well, the animals themselves are quite small and very, very harmless. This is an amphibia. It has lungs and gills, and it's light pink because you can actually see the bloodstream 
through the skin. Right. And it's blind because it lives in darkness. It only feeds every few months. There is not a lot of organic matter. And these animals live in underground streams. So they would just eat whatever comes into the cave with water. We're talking albino salamanders today on Travel with Rick Steves. Brad, thanks for your call. You're very welcome. I'm speaking with Barbara Jakopic, and we're talking about Slovenia. Barbara, another part of the cave uh, dimension of Slovenia is the amazing story of World War I, as there was a lot of caves that were used to help defend the uh, soldiers during this horrendous sort of battle uh, in World War I. Um, Tell us about that. Well, in the World War I, there was this big battlefield fought on Slovenian territory near the Socha River, Isonzo River. And so we think Isonzo Front, and this is famous from Hemingway's... Uh, yes, uh, Farewell to Arms. Farewell to well, Arms. In Slovenian, it's the Socha Socha, yes, okay. exactly. It's one of the most beautiful areas of the country, and the battlefield was high on the mountains. And also our mountains, Julian Alps, they consist out of limestone. So we have caves high up there on the mountain plateaus. Now, in the First World War, a lot of positions, especially for Austrian army, was in the mountains. So they would use not the natural caves so much because the natural caves in that part are very deep, vertical and very deep. Uh, but they would dug their own shelters. They're called caverna. The, and the soldiers can, would dig their own yes, shelters in yes, the limestone. Yes, in the rock, in the limestone. And you can still find those places if now, you go as a, the as a local girl who's mm-hmm. just been camping and hiking around, have you ever adventured away and found some caves and even some artifacts? Oh, yes, yes. That's still uh, quite possible. I found uh, shells, empty shells from the First World War. They have a date on it, 1912. So they were used, probably used in the First World Wars. And when you go around the mountains, you can find all sorts of material, uh, showers and barbed wire fences and cans for food that the soldiers would use. And you can still find live ammunition. So you have to be careful with that. And a powerful memorial to all of the Italians who died there. Yes, there is the big ostiary in Koberit, that's yeah. for the Italians. Yeah. There is also one in Tulmin for the German soldiers who also uh, fought in the last battle. And there are many, many small cemeteries. And if you want to learn more about the World War I story, it's one of the, the big secrets, I think, of sightseeing in that part of Europe. You can go there and learn about the, the Socha Front. Exactly. There is an excellent museum in Koberit. One more uh, interesting uh, dimension of underground Slovenia, an old mercury mine. Talk about that. Well, that's another part of Slovenia because Slovenia is very diverse. We have a lot of small, small different areas that you really maybe need some time to explore. And Idria is right in the middle of the hilly terrain, not in the Julian Alps, but in the subalpine mountains. It's one of the biggest mercury mines, second largest in the world. It's not in operation anymore. It was closed in the 1980s. Now, this is Idria, I-D-R-I-A. And what would you see there if you were a tourist? Um, Well, there is a lot of heritage connected with this 500 years of mercury mining. Mm -hmm. And it brought a lot of wealth, a lot of money. It was a very important mine for Austria, of course. It was under Austrian control. And you can still see a lot of this technical heritage. So you can go into the mine. Okay, so I think this must be the only place to see the history of mercury mining in Europe that I've ever heard of. Yeah. And there's a a Second World War hidden army hospital. That's on the way. When you, for example, drive from Ljubljana to Itria, in the middle of the way, you can stop at Franja Army Hospital. 
and it's extremely interesting site and it's also waiting to be included on the UNESCO list. When you say extremely interesting, why? Uh, well, what is it? You can actually see what the Second World War hidden hospital looked like. There are still 14 barracks there uh, that were used for treating wounded partisans mostly, but also other soldiers, even two Americans were treated in Franja Hospital. It was working from the end of 1943 till the end of the war, and they treated really difficult cases as well. At the end, they even had x-rays. And they would bring wounded soldiers there by night. They walked on the stream so that nobody could find the entrance. They would hide the entrance by having people yes. walk up the stream to yes. get to the entrance. And who built the hospital? Who was it for? It was built by the partisans with the help of the local people from Meaning nearby villages. Meaning the communists villages. that were fighting against... Tito's partisans, Tito's yes. partisans yes. fighting against uh, Hitler. Yes. Okay. And that's available to be seen today, and that's Franja. F-R-A-N. Exactly. F-R-A-N-J-A. Franja. It's named after the main doctor, Franja Bojtsbidovic. There is a lot of underground Slovenia. We've seen the Second World War hospital, Franja, the hidden hospital that you got to walk up a riverbank to get to so the Nazis won't know you're coming. Of course, you can get there more comfortably today. You got Mercury Mine at Idria, I-D-R-I-A. And we had the, the caves dug into the mountain high above for the World War I battlefront. We always think of yes. the, the Western Front between France and Germany, but this was also a very hard-fought front in those same years. And, of course, the two big caves, Postonia and Skotjan. Mm-hmm. Forgive and my Slovenian, but uh, those are the, the two big caves. Yeah. And Mike from Bar Harbor, Maine, sort of gives another dimension to our discussion with an email. And Mike writes, My most cherished memory in underground Slovenia was not the caves, but the subterranean wine cellars. We got to experience the Slovene tradition of homemade wine, prust, salami, and of course, the schnapps, while gathered around a friend of a friend's table in his home wine cellar. Slow food before it was fashionable. What a way to live. So you can find wine cellars, too. Oh, definitely. A lot of them. So it's hard to miss them. Hard to miss. And we haven't even talked about the beautiful capital of your country, Ljubljana. It's getting more beautiful every day. Barbara Jakopic, thank you so much for, for sharing a little bit about your country, Slovenia, both overground and underground. Well, it was great to be here and vidimo se v Ljubljani. What does that mean? We'll see each other in Ljubljana. I hope so very much. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to WBUR Boston and Interlochen Public Radio for studio help and to Gretchen Strauch for reading our listener travel haiku. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. We'll see you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Each year, Rick Steves tour guides take thousands of free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through Europe, one small group at a time. This year, you can choose from more than 40 different vacations in Europe's best destinations, from Ireland to Greece, and practically everywhere in between. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.